Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there is no parachute today. <laughs> now, as a church family, we have been very blessed on our journey from Lent to Easter Sunday with rich worship and reflection and symbols such as the parachute to guide us. But I must confess that all the glory and fanfare of, of Easter Sunday is a tough act to follow today. But I do also have some very good news, because Easter is not over. Parachute or not, today is the second Sunday of Easter, of the season of Easter, which means that our celebration continues. And throughout these great 50 days, uh, between Christ's resurrection and the day of Pentecost, which is when the Holy Spirit breathed life into the church, we celebrate this great mystery of our faith. And we reclaim for ourselves what it means to be Easter people. As followers of a risen Christ, people who are shaped by the truth that God's love has ultimately conquered sin and death, and that we are bearers of that great good news to be given to the world around us. So this morning's reading from John's Gospel is a very familiar one to most of us. We hear it every year on this second Sunday of Easter. But despite its familiarity, I know that the Word of God is living and breathing and the Holy Spirit has something fresh for us to hear today. Now our Gospel story begins on the evening of Easter, picking up just hours after Mary Magdalene proclaimed that she had seen the Lord. The disciples are cowering behind locked doors in the upper room. You see, the events of Good Friday, the trauma of witnessing Jesus' death just a few days before, had cast a very long shadow of fear over these closest friends of Jesus. And now they are locked behind doors, fearing retribution from the same authorities who had condemned Jesus to death. Even though Mary Magdalene has told them that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead, they don't believe her. They don't trust her testimony, and instead they cling to their fear until, until Jesus comes to them, offering them peace and blessing, showing them the wounds of his hands and his side. Only then is the cloud of fear lifted and the disciples are able to rejoice. Yet as we know, one of the disciples was missing and we don't know why Thomas wasn't there. We can surmise from other encounters in John's Gospel that Thomas was a very practical-minded sort of guy. And he was very committed to following Jesus and he loved Jesus dearly. But when the disciples share the news with Thomas that the risen Christ has appeared to him, to them, he does not trust their testimony, just like they had not trusted the testimony of Mary Magdalene just hours earlier. And he declares that unless I see the wounds for myself, I will not believe until that next week when Jesus appears to the disciples again and this time Thomas is present, and Christ again, and once again, Christ blesses them with peace. 
Now, there's a classic painting depicting the moment when Jesus invites Thomas to touch the wound on his side. The incredulity of St. Thomas, as it's titled, hangs in the San Suci picture gallery in Potsdam, Germany. And it was painted by the 17th century Italian artist Caravaggio. You may have noticed that a digital version of that painting is on the front of your bulletin this morning. Now, in the original painting, the figures are life-size. But even in its shrunken form, it's a stunning painting, really. I personally find it to be haunting, yet powerful. And at first, to be honest, I was a bit repelled by the graphic detail, but at the same time, it felt like I couldn't look away because I was captivated by it. Now, Caravaggio used a style of painting called uh, chiaroscuro, a term that in the art world is used to describe the strong contrast between light and dark, which adds an intensity and a power to the scene. The attention to detail is striking, giving it a very lifelike feel and inviting us as viewers to become part of that encounter. The light draws focus to Thomas's furrowed brow and his facial expression as he's intently concentrating on the wound on Jesus' side. But notice how Jesus leans in toward Thomas with a tenderness on his face. And unlike other paintings from the Baroque era, there is no halo over Jesus' head to point to his divinity. And although John, the gospel writer, doesn't explicitly tell us whether Thomas actually did touch Jesus' wound, Caravaggio interprets this story as if he had. Jesus guides Thomas's finger directly into the wound as the layers of broken flesh give way to his touch. And peering closely over Thomas's shoulder are two of the other disciples, presumably Peter and John, angling for a view as if seeking the truth for themselves. I find it to be a very intense yet very intimate scene, and there's so much to reflect upon. You know, the term incredulity, and by the way, means to be unable or unwilling to believe something. So to call someone incredulous suggests that they are firmly set in their disbelief and unyielding. Now in Caravaggio's day, it was considered a virtue to believe without doubt, to believe without skepticism. And the title of this painting represents a popular interpretation that has persisted throughout much of Christian history, suggesting that doubt is something to be avoided. And no one should be a doubting Thomas but rather one should simply believe. But it's not that simple, really. And I'd like to suggest that perhaps it's time to free Thomas from the bad reputation that he's suffered throughout history and acknowledge that there can be a valid place for doubt in a maturing faith. And maybe now, more than any other time in history, in a recent edition of Christian Century Magazine, author Catherine Pershey suggests that Thomas might be the patron saint for the secular age, as well as the patron saint of FOMO. 
For those of you who don't have the influence of young adults in your life, FOMO is shorthand for fear of missing out. And it's a familiar theme among millennials. Thomas's instinct was to require hard proof before assenting to a claim that was objectively bananas, Percy writes. Dead people stay dead, and it's embarrassing to believe otherwise. Yet the mystery of our faith tells us otherwise, that indeed Jesus Christ died and on the third day was risen from the dead. It is the cornerstone of our faith. You know, the human mind searches for order. It seeks to make sense of things, to understand the world, to organize data that we can observe and perceive. It's the impulse that pushes us towards scientific discovery and towards greater understanding and knowledge of the world around us. We seek answers to those things that are mysteries or that seem to be unexplainable. It should be no surprise that Thomas or the other disciples would seek more clarity or more evidence of the truth when faced with such life-changing and indeed world-changing news. Yet the one who has hardwired our brains to seek clarity and understanding also has created us with hearts that long to be in loving relationship with God and one another. And that is where faith comes in. One commentator puts it this way, saying faith is a mystery of the heart that the mind wants to solve. And God holds the key to both. Jesus responds to Thomas with all gentleness and compassion, inviting Thomas to touch his wounded body. And in response to Thomas's doubt and hesitation, Jesus tells him in our translation, do not doubt, but believe. Now, some biblical translators suggest that Jesus' words would be better translated as do not be unfaithful, but have faith. This is not a scolding or a rebuke or a judgment by Jesus. Jesus is simply meeting Thomas where he is and giving him in that moment exactly what he needs to deepen his faith. Doubt in and of itself is not a flaw or a spiritual weakness, nor is it an enemy that needs to be fought off, but it does need to be understood. Pope Francis has spoken openly about the role of doubt and faith, asking this, who among us has not experienced insecurity, loss, and even doubts in their journey of faith? Everyone, me too. It is part of the journey of faith. It is part of our lives. And that he and others have gone so far as to say that doubt is an essential part of our faith that gives shape to our faith. One writer calls doubt the ants in the pants of faith that keep it moving and awake. And again, quoting Pope Francis, if one has the answers to all the questions, that is the proof that God is not with him. It means that he is a false prophet using religion for himself. The great leaders of the people of God, like Moses, have always left room for doubt. You must leave room for the Lord, 
not for our certainties. We must be humble. One of my favorite authors and writers, Barbara Brown Taylor, explains her experience this way. She said, doubt often brings me to poke at what I believe. And when it topples, I realize that was an idol. And so doubt and disillusionment have been the divine gifts that have led me deeper into who God is. There is room for doubt. Just ask C.S. Lewis or Mother Teresa or Martin Luther or John Calvin, all of them and many others who have been spiritual giants have openly and honestly written about their own encounters with doubt along their faith journeys and the role that it played in their growing relationship to God. I had a mentor many years ago who gently reminded me when I was distressed about some doubts that I was struggling with that God's love is big enough. God's love is deep enough. God's love is gracious enough to handle our questions and our doubts. And what I needed to remember at that time was who it was that was standing alongside me in the midst of it. Jesus entered the upper room not once but twice to be present with the disciples in their doubt and fear. And the first thing he offered them was peace. Jesus met them where they were and Jesus meets us where we are. There's a beauty in the innocence of new faith, but as we grow and mature spiritually, we come to recognize the complexities of life. We come to recognize that living in faith as Christ calls us to in a complex world is indeed complex and at times paradoxical. We belong to God's kingdom, which is both already, but not yet. And in order to save our life, we must die to self. Our weakness is the source of our strength. Through suffering, we can find hope. Out of death comes life. I think back to the Lenten study group that I was a part of um, that was discussing Isabel Hamley's book, Embracing Justice, and how we wrestled with some of those paradoxes of God's nature. God being a God of mercy, but also a God of justice. Justice that is both retributive and restorative. And there are many others that we could list and probably thinking about in our minds right now. But a maturing faith is willing to make room for doubt and wrestle with the paradoxes and the mystery of the spiritual journey. And Thomas's story can be an important reminder that doubt is a very human and very universal experience on our journey. And more importantly, it is Christ's loving presence. It is Christ's peace that turns doubt to praise and deeper understanding. It is through faith that our hearts trust in God's love and God's goodness more than our mind's inability to fully comprehend the mystery of God's love that raised Jesus from the dead. We have the gift of trustworthy witnesses, starting with Mary Magdalene and Thomas and the other disciples who saw the risen Christ with their own eyes, who provided credence for such seemingly unbelievable good news. 
And we have countless testimony of other faithful followers of Christ through 2,000 years that attest to God's love, transforming lives and transforming the world, which undergird and reinforce our own experiences with Christ's love, transforming us and transforming the world around us. But we also have an advocate, the Holy Spirit, to aid us in understanding in our journey of faith. It is a gift of grace that invites us to embrace with fullness of our being the hope and the peace and promise that is God's love for us and for the world. And we have every reason to celebrate and rejoice on this second Sunday of Easter with the assurance of Christ's peace and presence that will continue to lead and guide us forward in the midst of the mystery. And as benediction, I would like to offer these words from Frederick Buechner in a sermon given over half a century ago, which the words endure with hope. Anxiety and fear are what we know best in this fantastic century of ours. Wars and rumors of wars. From civilization itself to what seemed the most unalterable values of the past, everything is threatened or already in ruins. We have heard so much tragic news that when the news is good, we cannot hear it. But the proclamation of Easter is that all is well. And as a Christian, I say this not with the easy optimism of one who has never known a time when all was not well, but as one who has faced the cross in all its obscenity, as well as in all its glory, who has known one way or another what it is like to live separated from God. In the end, God's will, not ours, is done. Love is the victor. Death is not the end. The end is life. God's life and our lives through God and in God. Existence has greater depths of beauty, mystery, and benediction than the wildest visionary has ever dared to dream. Christ our Lord has risen. And may the peace of the risen Christ be with you. Amen. Amen.